When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tech Sideline is presented by First Bank and Trust Company, the bank that puts you first. They can meet your banking and financing needs for personal, agricultural, business, commercial, mortgages, and so much more. Visit firstbank.com to learn more. Happy start of the second semester, Hokie Nation. Both men's and women's basketball have had an eventful couple of weeks experiencing both big wins and frustrating losses. What can we take away from a busy week on the hardwood? Plus, some new Hokies have arrived for the spring semester, adding to the roster on the football front. Our guys are here to tell you why and who these people are and how much they matter. It's coming up next on episode 341 of the Tech Sideline Podcast, and it starts right now. Record on Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, from our studios at the Virginia Tech Corporate Research Center. Remember to like, subscribe, and refer the show to a friend, or head over to thetechsideline.com to check out our extensive editorial content. As always, the first month of subscriptions is free. I'm your host, Giovanni Heater. Across the way, our senior staff writer, Mr. Andy Bitter. To my right, Chris Coleman, our lead analyst and columnist. In the fourth chair, our managing editor, David Cunningham. And behind this scene, hosting our mustache man, Mr. Nick Brown. Tech Sideline is presented by First Bank and Trust Company, but the Tech Sideline podcast is also brought to you by the Hokie Way. In their second year in operation, the Hokie Way thanks Virginia Tech fans for their support of our mission to leverage student-athletes' name, image, and likeness in support of charitable organizations. To learn more about us and the organizations that we support, visit thehokieway.org. we got a jam-packed show for you here today. We're talking football, we're talking men's and women's basketball football crew starts off our show today and it starts with the new freshman in town on campus for the spring semester andy overlooking thoughts here you know how important is it to get these guys in town get them in early and uh, get them going here quick you know important to a degree uh i think what's notable is there's so many early enrollees they have 14 of them we're going to have 15 so it's like davy belfort has to finish up uh, some classes to, to graduate high school early uh, or finish high school on time just had a few classes he had to wrap up and couldn't get here early uh you know that's been a thing under brent prize they've had a lot of these guys coming in early enough transfers of course you're going to want to get them in early but they also have nine freshmen i believe it is that they're coming in uh at the mid-year so a little bit more important i think for the transfers than the true freshmen you don't really see a lot of true freshmen play regardless of whether they enroll early and i went back and i, I looked at a you know most impactful freshman that they've had here in the last couple of years the biggest impact has been monsoor delane he enrolled in the summer so, so he wasn't even an early enrollee so I, th- I think just based on uh playing time that's available it's not going to be that key that these true freshmen are here right now but for the transfers 
you're talking about a pretty big spring. You think about uh, last year, Kyron Drones coming in, what the spring meant to him, sort of getting introduced to the offense. I mean, these are the guys that are going to be on the field. So I'm looking at somebody like Sam Brumfield in particular, uh, you know, quarterback of the defense has to learn the calls, learn the system, get, uh, you know, uh, in tune with everybody on the defensive side of the ball. So they're all on the same page. I think that stuff is very important. And uh, the earlier you, you get here, the more you can sort of hone that craft. Yeah, that's the way I see it. Important for the transfers. I think for the freshmen, it just means an extra semester in the weight room and in getting, getting acclimated to college earlier. Um, the weight room time is very valuable. Look, not very many true freshmen are going to play this year for Virginia Tech. Only five of the 25 true freshmen from uh, from last year's class did not redshirt. So, and it's going to be even fewer than that this year because it's a smaller class and Tech is bringing back all almost all their key players and they fill all their glaring holes in the portal. So I think there's like 15 true freshmen in this signing class. I don't think more than like two of them will play this year. I think the rest will redshirt. And even even the guys who I think are really good, like I think Emmett Laws is a very good player, but Tech brought in three transfer defensive tackles and returns two veterans. Uh, I think Keelan Adams is a very good prospect, but like your top seven wide receivers are either very proven or somewhat proven. It's good, and, and it's a run-heavy offense, so it's going to be tough for a true freshman to break into that rotation. So, like, I think somebody will play, but, like, I could actually see a scenario where no true freshman, where, like, they all redshirt this year. I think that's possible. I don't think it's likely, but I think it's possible. Um, so I think for this particular year, I know everybody gets excited about freshmen and everything like that, but it's just not something that I think is crucial this year because Tech brings back so many experienced players. But I do think for on an individual basis – like there are guys that that extra semester in the weight room will will really help them where, you know, they don't actually they they don't have to worry about football yet. It's not like they're game planning for an opponent. Guys can just really pay attention to their own personal development. Um, but it, as far as like having an impact on this year's team, I don't think these early enrollees. I just I don't think it, I don't think it's I don't think it's that type of season for Virginia Tech. I think this is very much a a reload. Or not even a reload. I mean, you're not even reloading to a certain extent. You're reloading at defensive tackle, but your other positions, everybody's coming back. So, uh, like this freshman class, it's a small class, but you know, it's a it's it's a class for the future, not 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 the present. Allow me to uh, bring everybody up to speed with exactly who is on campus here to start the spring semester. Fourteen total scholarship players. We'll start with the transfers: Sam Brunfield, the linebacker, defensive tackle uh, Kamari Copeland, offensive lineman Montavious Cunningham, defensive tackle Kelvin Gilliam, and then defensive tackle uh, out of Duke again, the big one Aeneas Peebles. That was a guy that you were very excited for there. And then out of the high schoolers, wide receiver Keelan Adams, cornerback Joshua Clark, defensive end Derek. Dandy, defensive tackle uh, Andrew Hanchuk, uh, defensive end Gerard Johnson, running back Tyler Mason, uh, safety Quentin Reddish, wide receiver Chance Wiggins, and then linebacker, uh, we know him uh, very, very vocal on Twitter, Gabe Williams uh, is on campus. He's officially uh, in Blacksburg here. So I I, I kind of bring you back to, okay, what does this mean? How big can this be? Do you see anybody on that list? Obviously, the transfers are kind of plug-and-play, freshman-wise, that has the opportunity to come and make an impact because there were some freshmen this past season, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, that got some burn. 
You know, I think if Tech had only brought in like two transfer defensive tackles, you know, Emmett Laws was a guy. I think, I think he could definitely stick his nose in there and play to a certain extent. Maybe he still does. I don't know. I think Keelan Adams has the talent to do so. But again, there's so many proven wide receivers already in the program. Uh, if he can beat out a couple of those guys, he's more than welcome. Then, But, you know, he's got to earn it. Right. True for them. I mean, they've got to earn playing time. Um, so, you know, I, like I said, I think it's a good class, but because Tech brought back so many players, uh, I don't think there's going to be opportunity for a lot of these guys to play this year. Uh, maybe Gabe Williams, it, it, if they start him off at star, but that's somewhat dependent on Keonta Jenkins. If Jenkins leaves, that opens up a spot on the two deep at star. Now, maybe they move Kelly Lawson to star. Maybe they don't. Um, or maybe they, next year they would just go with Caleb Woodson and, and, and Gabe there. Uh, some of it, but most of the early playing time that might be available, it's it's more dependent on the older players, in, in my opinion. Um, I, I just don't think this is going to be a year where my true freshman report articles, I'm not even sure they're going to be necessary. Uh, I didn't do a lot. I used to do them like once every two weeks, and I only did like three of them this year because just that not that many freshmen were playing, so there was nothing to to report on really, but I think there's going to be even less to report on next year. Yeah. You, you look at this list and you know, size is and strength is typically a disqualifier for anybody in the trenches. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly offensive line, you just need to get bigger. I mean, you're just physically bigger than a lot of the guys you play in high school. And that's not going to be in the case in college. You have to learn technique and you know, everybody is strong in college. You have to figure out how to, to, you know, counteract that. So you don't typically see a lot of true freshman offensive linemen play anyway. Defensive line, I think is kind of in the same boat, uh, maybe a little bit more opportunity to play on that side of the ball, but I don't really see a need for it right now. Uh, you mentioned wide receiver, they got a lot of receivers here, a lot of young receivers that they got to figure out how to get a chance to play anyway. It might just be wise uh, to redshirt those guys. Now, maybe they force the issue if they're really that talented and that dynamic of players, but it's it's just tough to see right now when you have all those veterans and even the young guys like, you know, Aiden Green, Chance Fitzgerald, you know, where's the spot for them? How are they going to break through and play? And Aiden they, Green, let me jump in here and, and add this. I wrote my true freshman report today for the entire season. He had more non-special team snaps than any other true freshman this past season. So this is a guy who played 308 offensive snaps as a wide receiver this past year. And even his snaps might get eaten into with Ali Jennings coming back. Right, That's exactly. Right, you got right. another veteran coming back yeah. in that room. So that'd be really interesting to see how Fontel Mines handles uh, that. That's usually a position that has a little bit of ego that comes along with it. I mean, you want the ball if you're a receiver. It's going to be tough to do that. There's only one ball to go around. I'm looking at this list, and the one player that maybe stands out to me a little bit is Quentin Reddish at safety, because I don't feel like safety is, I mean, you have to look at opportunity. Safety is not exactly a spot that is just, you know, flush with returning players. Jalen Stroman is the one returning starter there. He just had surgery, uh, missed the bowl game. I'm not sure how long he'll be out in the offseason, if he'll be ready to go uh, by springtime. Most Phillips is a young guy there. Jalen Jones is there as well. Uh, I think Christian... Uh, Williams will be there. He's kind of a tweener. Uh, yeah, it sounds like he's he's yeah. sort of between both. Uh, Devin Alves, I think, was working at some safety uh, late in the season. So I, I don't exactly know what the safety crew is going to be there this year. But it's not like there's, you know, Nasir Peoples and Jalen Stroman. You go, well, they're your obvious two starters. Like this year, I think it'll be Stroman and Mose Phillips, maybe. But of those Jaylen two who plays free safety, they were both strong Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's some interchangeability with those two. Right. So we'll see. But... I think of all the positions, that's the one that there's some opportunity for a true freshman 
you know, possibly could it, minimum could work his way into the, the, the two deep there, but you know, possibly even more. We'll see how he does once he gets here. I mean, it's, it's kind of a crapshoot how these guys get here and how they, uh, you know, acclimate to college. Cause y- you want to go down the the signing day list and go, Oh, this guy's a five-star four-star um, he'll play right away. And it's not, that's not always the case. I mean, it's just maturity, uh, you know, how ready you are for schoolwork in addition to the stuff on the field, how well you handle it and, and whether the opportunity is there. Sometimes it's not who you would expect uh, to be the first guy to play. You're right. I agree with you on safety. The problem there is that's the position where you don't want that to happen. Cause if you look back through the years, the last Virginia Tech true freshman before Mose Phillips to play significant snaps at safety was Jimmy Williams in 2002. And he didn't get on the field till the end of that year when there were a bunch of injuries and the defense started to collapse, right? How'd Mose Phillips get on the field this year? Injuries and targeting at safety. He was Virginia Tech's lowest graded defender this year amongst all the regulars. And I'm not, and I think he's, he's going to be a very, very good player. I'm just using it as an example of how hard it is to play safety as a true freshman. Like you've seen like Shamari Connor played as a true freshman, Reggie Floyd played as a true freshman, but it was like 30 snaps on defense and then 150 snaps on special teams. It wasn't 250, 300 snaps like you saw most Phillips had to do this past season. It's not ideal at all to throw a true freshman safety in there. It's, it's, it's it takes a while to pick up that position. You, there's not a position on the field outside of like Mike linebacker where you combine the run responsibilities with pass coverage. And that's why like the angles, the speed of the game, um, it, it's just a lot for a, a young player. Uh, they're not used to quarterbacks being able to pass like college quarterbacks. You know, certainly you're not used to that at the high school level. Uh, it's, it's easy relatively to come in and play as a true freshman corner. Tech has had a ton of guys do that through the years. They don't have true freshmen to play. It's safety. It just it just rarely ever happens. And if it does, it's born out of necessity rather than actual, oh, this guy was really dominant and we just couldn't keep him off the field. So if there's any position Tech wants to go out and continue to address in the portal, could be safety in, in the next window. Well, I got the uh, I mean, that, that's the spot that it shows up. If yeah, that guy's not experienced. I mean, you can sort of, if you're a receiver and a true freshman and not quite there yet, like you just don't catch a lot of passes or something like that, right. or you're you're bad at blocking or something like that. It doesn't completely just decimate the play. But, if, I mean, safety, you're the fail-safe on the mm-hmm. defense. And if you're not there, you can see a lot of big plays going over the top. And I think you saw a lot of that uh, this past season. So, ideally, no, you don't want him to have to play a major role. I think uh, – you know, if you're tech and you're looking at like, can he get some special team snaps, work him into the defense a little bit. If those, you know, veteran guys continue to progress and are the, you know, one, two, three, you'd expect with Stroman Jones and, and Phillips. I'm going to, I'm going to put my thought on hold for a moment and take us where Chris is taking the conversation here. And that's to, uh, you go into spring ball and then, and then spring wraps up. Where else could Virginia Tech maybe look to add? You mentioned safety out of the transfer portal because that opportunity will be there. I would never turn down like an offensive lineman that I thought could help, thought had a legitimate chance to start. Um, And I don't think the the coaches would either, you know, if it's the right fit and at a position of need and and everything like that. Um, What might surprise some people is Virginia Tech is looking at running backs and quarterbacks. Um, Tyler Bowen, there's a Juco running back that he's looking at, that he's personally scouting. I think they they like Malachi Malachi Thomas is is a good, solid running back, but Malachi Thomas was an inside zone guy whose game is all about vision. 
cutting off the blocks. You saw it when he was good as a true freshman two years ago against against and he had those back to back hundred yard games and he was breaking off big runs against Syracuse. You could see it was his vision on those those inside runs, the cutback stuff. That's not the type of plays that this Virginia Tech offensive line is good at blocking. Nearly all of Tootin's yards this year came on the outside, on outside zone type plays. Um, and this JUCO running back, uh, his la- Therese Worthy, I believe is his name. He is an outside guy, very very fast guy, um, outside back all the way. He, I think for I think Virginia Tech might consider him to be a better fit for the strengths and weaknesses of this offensive line. So he's someone they're taking a look at. Where's uh, he from? He's a JUCO from Maryland. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, out of high school, he was MVP of the Big 33 All-Star Game, which is Pennsylvania versus Maryland. Um, and there's a quarterback they're looking at. And, gosh, from an FCS school, I forget which one, but he was a very productive player. He's a big guy like drones, and he's an experienced guy with only one year left. So that means, they're to me, they're, they're looking at – they want more experience in their quarterback room in case something happened to drones. But they also want someone like drones in terms of size so you don't have to change the offense very much. Uh, you kind of wonder if in the future, Virginia Tech, they would like a certain prototype of, of quarterback in there. Um, I, don't think that, I don't think that necessarily tells you anything about, you know, Pop Watson per se. And quite frankly, if I were that kid, I wouldn't come to Virginia Tech. I wouldn't spend my last year of eligibility sitting on the bench. Right. Well, so I mean, I don't if, think if that's you're coming happen. in, you're coming in with the uh, understanding that you're the backup. So why would you do that if you if you're uh, already starting somewhere else? Yeah, right? I don't know. Maybe yeah. just uh, want to come get a degree from Virginia Tech. Yes. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, maybe yeah, who knows what motivates some of these guys? I mean, maybe. I mean, I think you look at the quarterback situation. They have three really young quarterbacks after Drones. And Drones is a guy who runs the ball a lot. He takes some punishment. Uh, I think if you're a coach, you would like to have somebody who's, you know, taking more than some garbage time snaps in college, which is basically all they have with Pop Watson and Dylan Whitkey so far. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a comfort thing. They go, well, what what if Drones goes down for like a series or two and, and, you know, checking him out on the sideline or something like that after a big hit? Like you would like somebody to go in there and and be – maybe not just a caretaker for the offense or that like, like just don't screw this up at this point. Uh, you know, you have to prepare for that contingency. So, um, you know, we'll see the roster's tight. I mean, they still need attrition at this point and, and they'll get it. I mean, they yeah. always, they always get it to hit the 85 number, but then a little bit more if they want to add anybody else. So, uh, it's tight. They'll be interesting to see how they manage it. And to be clear, I don't know that Virginia tech has offered either one of those players. Okay. Um, I just know that they're, you know, they're doing their research and, and they're trying to figure out what's what's right for them. So you look at uh, everybody that enrolled early last year um, for Virginia Tech, going into year number two of Brent Pride, going into last spring. Only two of those guys really even touched the field this year. That was uh, Aiden Green, uh, Mose Phillips, I believe, was in that conversation. So, Andy, can you talk a little bit about how this doesn't mean everything, the fact that these guys are coming here early? Yeah, I mean, we, we looked at the, the guys who made the biggest impact in the last – you know, five years as true freshman, uh, Monsieur Delane probably was the best one. He didn't enroll early. He got here in the summer. Uh, and in fact, now he got here in the summer, but he was injured in August. And that's why it kind of delayed his start. Uh, and, you know, he really came on in the second half of the season. So 
Uh, I'm trying to think back at other true freshmen that were pretty big impact guys. Dorian Strong. Dorian was Strong. not an early enrollee. Even yeah. if he had been, there was no spring practice because of COVID. Exactly. Right. Uh, you know, Trey Turner, Dax, uh, Hollyfield were early enrollees, I believe, when they got here. Taven Robinson, I cannot remember I if he, that he was. was. Yeah. Um, you know, he kind of emerged as a punt returner that year. Even going back to under Beamer, like Isaiah Ford, Cam Phillips, when they were freshmen, they weren't early enrollees. Right. Uh, they got here and they were just like that good and that, you know, well uh, adjusted mentally to be able to step into college and be able to handle all the responsibilities that come with that. I think sometimes we overlook that fact that like this is, you know, think of that transition for just a regular student going from high school to college and everything that that, you know, all the pitfalls with that and, you know, landmines that you step on at that point and then add football on top of that and a whole other responsibility. So it, it's really tough. And it takes a certain type of person to be able to handle that. And sometimes it's tough to tell who can handle that and who can't. So uh, I would just caution that you look at these early enrollees and like, well, these are the guys that are going to play early. It's like it never really plays out that way. It's usually just how, you know, well adjusted that player is uh, for the opportunity. And then they actually have the opportunity with, you know, playing time being available. Anything else on the football front before we uh, shift gears to a little bit of men's hoop here? No, I think Andy covered it all. Um, you'd like to get Belfour in, which was the original plan, but again, it's not a huge deal because if Virginia Tech needed a true freshman quarterback this year, then things aren't going well anyway. Right. right? I mean, so they have, not really they have two quarterbacks yeah. that aren't much further along than true <laughs> freshmen as it is yeah. uh, ahead of him. So, right. so it's just, and I agree with Andy. Like, like it's cool. It's a cool thing to talk about, but. The whole early enrollee thing is a little bit overblown, but it is good to get them in early. But at the same time, I don't think it significantly changes their chances of having a like a big impact in their first year. For most true freshmen, it's more about are they needed to play rather than are they they're just so good you can't keep them out of the lineup. I mean, since the last time we did the podcast, some pretty major news has happened in college football with Nick Saban retired. I don't think oh, he yeah, retired yeah. by the last time. Like, I mean, that's seismic yeah in college football you think about it and think of this if jim harbaugh goes to the nfl you're talking about alabama and michigan replacing their coaches wow. at the same time after after we had thought that the coaching carousel had died down to this point so it's interesting now that you know kalen DeBoer moving jed fish yep. going up to washington to replace him san jose state guy gets promoted up to arizona i mean there's like this other round of uh the coaching carousel going on i, th I think if harbaugh leaves uh, Which I think will happen. That would be three of the four playoff teams that would have I mean, lost that, a coach. That, that's insane. An insane amount of movement. And uh, who was the guy that stepped in for him when he was suspended? I mean, he was suspended oh, for half the season. Half the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I would it know was the offensive line coach and co-offensive coordinator, I think. Sherrod something. Yeah. Yeah. Sherrod, I forget Sherrod his name. Moore? Yeah. Yes. His name? Yeah. Yeah. I would think that he would be a pretty... Uh, you know, hot internal candidate for. I mean, he, he stepped in and he won all those games in Harbaugh's absence for that. <laughs> it's hard it, to do better than 100. If you want to keep that just machine going and what you have going at, at Michigan, it would make sense that they would just promote him uh, internally for that. But I mean, it's just this crazy amount of turnover. Like this is the end of an era in college football. And it's weird. I, he he got there uh, the year before I got to Auburn. Uh, so the first, his second year when they, they pounded Auburn in Tuscaloosa, it was like 36 nothing. It was Tuberville's last game there. Uh, that was sort of the rise of uh, the Alabama dynasty. And that was a long time ago now, and they yeah. were still going strong all the way until the end of that. I mean, I don't think you're ever going to see a run quite like that. I mean, what do you win? Six national championships yep. in yeah. Alabama? That's insane. Uh, so, I mean, it really feels like we're at the end of an era of, 
uh, college football-wise, not only going from the four-team uh, playoff to the 12-team playoff coming up, but realignment of uh, these super conferences starting to, to come into focus here with 16, 17, 18 teams, 20. Is Big Ten going to have 20? I've yeah. lost count. The Change Ten, your name, yeah. Big Ten. Change 18, your name so yeah. it makes sense. Um, <laughs> Nick Saban retiring feels like the very much the end of an era and sort of a turning of the page where, like, how long did everybody say, like, as soon as Nick Saban retires and all these other schools have a chance? Like, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, this machine that he built in Alabama can continue churning out, you know, titles now that he's not there running it. Like, everybody thought, oh, you know, Alabama is this, you know, Death Star that they've created there. It's like, well, a lot of that had to do with Saban. We'll see if somebody else can command that thing. You think uh, they got the guy that they wanted there uh, in DeBoer? No. no. He was, like, I think third, they got fourth the guy, choice? I think so. Yeah. I think you look at... Uh, you know, Dan Lanning sounded like he was the the name right out of the, the get-go once that happened, and he pretty quickly said no, uh, or said he was staying. He didn't explicitly say about Alabama. Uh, you know, I think Sarkeesian would have been a guy. I mean, he knew Alabama. He was a, an offensive coordinator there. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else might have been on that list initially. I, I think DeBoer is a, is a nice one. Uh Norvell, yeah, Mike, Mike Norvell, Norvell was the other sense. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, I think those guys look at that and they go, man, that is a no-win situation. <laughs> like, if you go, you're going into Alabama and if you lose two games next year, they're going to be calling for your head. Yeah. I mean, that's how quickly it goes. Uh, I mean, you saw, I'm just at Virginia Tech, you see how replacing a legend goes for the next guy. And now Justin Fuente made some missteps along the way here, but I think he draws a little bit more ire from the fan base than perhaps he deserves just because he was following up the legend. He, he didn't live up to those standards. Then that's a lofty expectation. That was even after four years of decline at the end of the Beamer era. Think about Saban. He's coming off a playoff appearance. Now that's considered a decline for them because they didn't win the national <laughs> championship, but uh, I mean, that's just a tough act to follow. You don't want to be the guy that follows the guy. It's, so. it's the toughest act to follow maybe in the history of the sport. I'm just, such a patient fan base for yeah. you know, any sort of missteps that this next coach might take. First time they lose to Auburn. Somebody said, that, I, I think he hired the defensive coordinator, was the head coach from South Alabama, who yes. was, who was yes. the defensive coordinator, I think, at Indiana during the COVID season. Somebody's like, if you would have told me that – Alabama would be replacing Nick Saban with the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator from Indiana. <laughs> like what they would have been like, what drugs are you on? If, if you're saying this, mm -hmm. I mean, that's how ridiculous and crazy this sport can change in, you know, fly blink of an eye like that. Yeah. I'm just happy. I got to see him throw his head <coughs> once in lane stadium. There you go. What game was that? LSU 2002 one? LSU game. I covered that Te one. I was at that. Yeah. yeah. Tech won 26 to eight. I believe I was in uh, Danville at the time, yeah, uh, assisting yeah. Nathan Waters in covering that game up here. No so. kidding. On that note, we'll switch it over uh, to basketball. Take a short break here. It's episode 341 of the Tech Sideline Podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Hokies fans, to episode 341 of the Tech Sideline Podcast. We swap out Andy. He makes his fourth chair debut. David is on set. Chris to my right, as always. And we're talking men's basketball here. Listen, big win for the Hokies against number 21 Clemson last week. Felt in control the majority of that ball game. Felt like it maybe could be a turning point. Didn't quite feel like it was a one-off, right? Felt like it could be a little bit of momentum. And then Tech follows it up uh, with a tough, close loss to Miami. Miami, but I want to start with this. 
I'd be amiss if we didn't talk about it. Sean Padula, he's been terrific. ACC Player of the Week, back-to-back 30-plus point games. I ask you guys, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Obviously, it's great that he's scoring, but... You know, he's got to be Superman, and he shouldn't have to do it all by himself. Well, the good thing is that he's done it pretty efficiently. It's not like he's out there taking 25 or 30 shots a game, and it's taking him that many shots to to, to get 30 points. Uh, he, he's been pretty efficient, very efficient, actually. Uh, you know, he had a good game against Florida State, too. I know that doesn't get, mm-hmm. get factored in because it wasn't this past week. So it's been three games in a row for him where I think he's been pretty good or, and very good specifically in the last two. Uh, it's good. It's a good thing that he can do it. Um, you can also see that there is a little bit of, you know, opponents are showing him a lot of respect. Like the last play of the Miami game when they just doubled him at the top of the key and, and left MJ Collins wide open. You know, that, that was just, we don't want Padua shooting that ball no matter what. So I think he's getting a lot of respect from opposing coaches from that standpoint and deservedly so. Uh, I think it's important to look at his other contributions. He had 10 rebounds yeah. against Miami. It's not like he's, Gio, you said he was, he's like playing like Superman, but it's not like he's uh, taking a lot and missing a lot. Um, he's, you know, he was 9 of 16 against Clemson. He was 13 of 23 against Miami. Uh, he's made 11 of his last 23 three-pointers he's made his last 10 free throws he's grabbing rebounds left and right he has uh, 11 assists in the last two games he's playing good basketball across the board I think Sean and this is from chatting with him after games that injury really took a toll on him a little bit because he had to sit back and watch and even though you know Tech was playing American and Valpo, right? You still want to be able to play. And he's kind of taken it. You know, and then and then I guess you should say that he came out against Wake Forest and did not play very well. Uh, he was still injured and he had uh six turnovers in that game. Um you know, he is since the start of the new year, like you said, Chris, he had twenty six points against Florida State. He's been a much better version of Sean Padula. And I think he's letting it flow to him more. He's just kinda kind of letting it come, and he's taking what the defense is giving him. He's not necessarily forcing it all the time. Yes, he's taking some shots that, you know, as Mike Young said, make you go, oh, okay, what are you doing here? Oh, he made it, okay. <laughs> um, so it, it's good and bad, but also with you got to factor in Hunter Couture's injury too. And I don't know if Sean Padula necessarily scores 32 if Hunter Couture's playing because a handful of those shots are going to go to him. And... We'll talk more about that, but I think he's playing very well right now. He's not necessarily running around like he has to try to do everything. He's not forcing it. He's not. He's getting his teammates involved too, and he's rebounding the ball well. Um, you know, seven assists and two turnovers against Clemson. Like that was part of the reason why Tech won. Now against Miami, Tech didn't take care of the ball. Part of that was on Padula, um, but he's still gra- he's still doing everything else. His contributions are necessary to success. To Tech's success, <coughs> Tech's kind of going as he's going right now, and I, I think that's a good thing because I, I I liked how Tech played on Wednesday, and I liked how Tech played on Saturday against Miami. That's a team that went to the Final Four last year that brought in Matthew Cleveland from Florida State, 
lost two key contributors but returned the other three, essentially. That's a team, like, three or four of those guys played at the Final Four last year. That's something Tech has not experienced. Yes, that was a Miami team that just lost to Louisville, but the way Jim Larinaga put it after the game was, well, all five or our four main players, four of the five starters, three of them had ankle sprains, and one of them uh, had something else going on, I forget, or was sick or something. Um, he's like, we didn't practice leading up to the Louisville game. And they practiced, they played like they were healthy against Tech. That's not a bad loss. People are going to look at it and go, okay, well, you couldn't beat Miami at home. Well, Miami's a much. Miami's been a top twenty-five team all year. Just lost a couple close games. I, I think. I think that is without Hunter Couture to only lose by four to Miami. Um, obviously, there are some things you want to learn from. You can't turn the ball over that many times, um, especially in some of those critical situations. But Tech's playing much better basketball since the last time we talked. All right, what's the latest? What do we know about Hunter Couture, his injury, uh, his status, and, you know, obviously how big is his absence? It feels like deja vu because this happened early in conference play last season. I will read you the quote. I asked Mike Young about Hunter Couture on Monday's Zoom call with the, for the AC teleconference. Uh, every Monday, once AC play starts, we get a chance to talk to all coaches from around the conference on a Zoom call. They each get 10 minutes, except for the coaches who play on, uh, who have games on Monday night. Mike spoke right after Tony Bennett yesterday and said about Hunter Couture, quote, he's feeling a lot better. He's got some tests and some markers he's got to achieve before he's cleared to play on Wednesday. I don't know any more than that. Time will tell if he's in uniform on Wednesday. Mike has been as expected. I expect nothing different. He's been very cautious as, as to not say as little as possible. There have been injuries in the past where, even like, I even go back to Sean Padula's injury, um, where he was like, yeah, you know, I think Sean's going to be fine. You know, this is, he literally like walked, uh, Mark Berman asked a question about what happened to Sean's, in, to, for Sean to get that injury. And he walked him through what happened and the steps they took. It's a little bit different with this, probably because it's a head injury. And he admitted it was a head injury. Whether that's a concussion, I, I would assume. Um, that's probably the logical thought. That is, it is, it is, it is a concussion. But, um, you know, the hope is that Hunter Couture can play. I, I wouldn't expect him on Wednesday. I think if he was going to play, maybe Saturday at NC State would be more likely. You also have to think... He might be healthy enough to get back to playing, but as he practiced, and it's a two-part thing there where you have to recover and then you have to get back into game shape, get in, back into practice shape. Um, so all things considered, I like the way Virginia Tech played without Hunter Couture on Saturday against Miami. MJ Collins wasn't perfect. He's still got a ways to go, but I thought he played pretty well defending Nigel Pack. He's a... Tough guy to guard. I can't imagine Virginia Tech trying to play last year's Miami team without Hunter Couture mm. because you got Isaiah Wong and Nigel yeah. Pack. Yeah. Um, I thought MJ Collins did fine. I, I think you're, you're starting to see a little. You see a little bit of wear and tear when when Tech doesn't have Couture. You start to see like like Mike Young was. He was being deliberate in his substitutions. He was making sure he had the right defensive matchup on Nigel Pack that he wanted, more so than the offensive matchup. He was trying to balance it. He played Jaden Young a little bit. He played Brandon Rexner a little bit. Brandon Rexner came in and turned the ball over twice. <laughs> so, like, what you you need? This is when you need stuff out of your freshman um, against Clemson. Hunter Couture goes down. Didn't play the entire second half. Tech got contributions 
from the guys they te- it needed. Robbie Barron played well. Makai Long played well. Tyler Nickel had a great game. Yeah. Uh, against Miami, those contributions weren't necessarily there completely. So if you're going to play a man down like that, who I would say is the most important player on the team, maybe not the best, Padua would be the best, but the most important, I think, because he's kind of the the, most well-rounded. Yeah, Yeah. he's your best defender, and he's a three-point specialist, and he does all the little gritty things. Um, You've got to get contributions from everybody else. So that's what I'm looking for on Wednesday, but I I think it's a very winnable game for Virginia Tech. Do you think things are a little bit better with this team since the last time we talked? We were kind of not necessarily hitting the panic button, but we walked out of here saying, yeah, I mean, the postseason look is is glum. Uh, and then they rip off a big one uh, a couple yeah. days later against Clemson. I thought the last three games, I thought they've played better, um, a lot better. I thought outside of a two-minute stretch, about four or five straight offensive rebounds against Florida State. <laughs> it was more than that. It was more than that, but uh, it was eight. Eight of their eleven. Eight, eight, it was eight a in stretch. three possessions. In three possessions. Outside of that stretch, I thought they played pretty well against Florida State. Obviously, they played well against Clemson. And I thought they played well against Miami, <coughs> considering they didn't have Padula. So I think from a team standpoint... Couture, you're right. Um, <laughs> I thought from a team standpoint, they are hitting their stride right now, which you would hope. Unfortunately, it coincides with Couture not there. And I do think they would have beaten Miami. You don't know this for a fact. You never know this for a fact. But you're talking about a fifth-year senior who's a lockdown defender and can hit 40% of his three-pointers. Uh, uh, He's not replaceable by anybody else on the roster. You lose that game by four. And I think Tech probably would have won. And I, and I think w- one of the biggest things is there was nobody else once it felt like once Padula got double teamed, there was nowhere else to go with the ball in that final possession. If, MJ takes the shot. Could there, probably takes that shot. There, there's, no way, there's no way you can defend Virginia Tech like that on that play if Hunter Couture's in the Correct. game. No chance. I think that's the biggest thing. When it gets down to crunch time right now, Padula is the only guy that really has the will to do it. Um, you know, for for all of the great things Tyler Nickel did against Clemson, uh, he had a career high. Uh, he came off the bench and had a career high twenty four points, and he grabbed four rebounds. You want to look at his second and a half stats against Miami? Uh, he was zero of two from three, zero of three from the floor, had no points, had two assists, and and and, yeah. and that's what I talk about when I say that <clears throat> the margins are so thin. When you don't have your most important player, you need guys to step up in key situations. People are gonna people were reaming MJ Collins on Twitter for that shot. Here's the thing, he just made the one right before it from right. that same exact spot. And like I, I know maybe he's not the guy you want taking it, but that's because Champadoul's got like two or three guys on him. And in those situations, right, I think you see where how badly Hunter Couture is needed for this team. If Hunter Couture gets back, Gio, I think this Virginia Tech team can start to put some things together. Now, it's a not an easy slate by any means. You've got, you've got two games on the road here, and winning on the road, doesn't matter where you play, is not easy. But this is a UVA team that is not playing very well and an NC State team that's kind of been hit or miss. But you're going to have to play good defense and, and bring that physicality both of which Couture is kind of key for. So if he can't go, that's not saying Tech's not going to have a chance to win either, but it just makes things a little bit more difficult. Gonna, oh, go ahead, Chris. UVA's offense is bad enough that they could keep Tech in the game for sure. Now, they are unbeaten at home. They're a much different animal at home. 
tough uh, place to play. Yeah, place it is, is a tough loud. place to play. Um, and they don't like Virginia Tech very much. They, they certainly don't. Um, <laughs> I think they're a little bit re- resentful that, like, they don't feel like Virginia Tech should be any good in basketball at all. Right. Because historically, from their perspective, Virginia Tech has not been. I mean, this is a school that's been, you know, gone to Final Fours and won a national championship and things like that. Well, we got this, though, more recently than they do. That's true. The Virginia Tech Hokies, yeah. baby. <laughs> The Virginia the Tech Hokies. <laughs> where, where, where's our uh, the the Virginia Tech Hoakies? Where's our go Hoakies? Right. Yes, yeah. yes, somewhere around here. <laughs> anyway, what, what do we know specifically about UVA? And and I didn't mean to cut you off, Chris. If you have more to say there, well, I was going to say this is this is Tony Bennett's second worst offensive team in his career at Virginia. This is his fifteenth season. Mm-hmm. That kind of tells you where UVA is. Um, the the team that was worse was that 2020 UVA team, which of course did not play in the NCAA tournament because of COVID, but it had the number one defense in the country. <laughs> right. This UVA team was 18th in adjusted defensive efficiency. Very good defensive team. They always are going to be under him. Yeah. But when you go on the road and can't hit shots, it affects you. That, that and that's tw- what UVA's experience. 12 minutes left in that game the other day, and they had 30 points. Yeah, true. Yeah. Andy, like you don't cover basketball, so you're very you're unbiased. I've covered some low scoring basketball yeah. before. I covered Dick Bennett in Wisconsin. Yeah, there, there you go, there you go. Tony so Bennett Tony was Bennett. actually a team manager on the Final Four team. I covered at Wisconsin wow. in 2000. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, they they called him a team manager. Of course, he, he didn't right. pick up towels and right. stuff. Trust me, a former NBA player was not doing that at the end of the bench. But, right. Uh, all right. So uh, I mean, it was the same. It was the pack line defense. That's oh, yeah. where he, That's where he learned it all. Was from his dad. No, Dick no doubt. No doubt. So uh, so you're you're used to seeing basketball like that. Yeah, yes. Very much so okay. as a Wisconsin right. uh, grad. Yes, I've. Seen some very <laughs> low-scoring, ugly games. As a uh, as someone who doesn't cover basketball, doesn't cover Virginia Tech basketball, you're not a Tech grad, you're not a UVA grad. Give me your unbiased outside point of view on UVA and Tech right now and in this game heading into it. What do in you this game, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of surprised how much UVA struggled this year. Uh, just because you mentioned year 15, you figure have all the pieces in place, you'd have an idea, a plan of how you want this thing to go, and it just is not worked out very well for this team. And, and obviously the, the Couture injury for Virginia Tech, uh, pretty major in this one. I, I think it's two teams that are just, just trying to find themselves right now. Uh, you know, we'll see if, if the result on, is it Wednesday? Wednesday. This week. Uh, Wednesday night will, you know, tell one direction or the other. It might just be one struggling team beating another <laughs> struggling team, and it doesn't mean a whole lot in the big picture. But I think this is a game that both teams need pretty badly right now. And typically... You know, you're not talking about that for the Hokies and UVA. One team's typically UVA in the past has been way up in the standings and, you know, can Tech knock them off and, and get a big win like that? UVA hasn't really been struggling like this in quite a while. So I, I think it's kind of a, a different dynamic to this game than what's you know happened the last couple of years. You mentioned how you mentioned that UVA is undefeated at home. UVA has lost three of its last four, four of its last six, mm-hmm. but all losses have been on, on the road. Right. Um, Beat Louisville at home by 24, and this is a UVA team that's very, very streaky. Reese Beekman is one of the best players in the ACC. That was what the Cavaliers returned this year. Reese Beekman was kind of the one main starter. Ryan Dunn, obviously, he got some key minutes for them as as a freshman last year. So did Isaac McNeely, and that's kind of the core, those three. UVA brought in a lot of transfers, and similar to Tech, I think – 
the guys are still trying to figure it out. Andrew Rohde, um came in <coughs> from, I want to say a D2 school. Um, that name is escaping me, but it might, it might've been from Minnesota. Uh, but there it's a, it's a, a lineup that is not very good offensively, much better on the defensive end, but offensively it's kind of similar to Virginia tech where, okay, you got Isaac McNeely, McNeely who can make any three pointer if he gets half a second to shoot it. And you've got Reese Beekman who takes care of the ball is a great passer and can score when needed. But if that's kind of your only offense, you're going to struggle. Even the best systems in the world do need a difference maker or two. Like, I mean, I sat in a room before when Buzz Williams called Mike Young one of the top five offensive coaches in the country. And I agree with that comment. But like when you lose Justin Mutz, like there's just not that many power forwards on this earth who can lead the team and assist two years in a row. I mean, he was that unique. Ch- losing much changed the dynamic of the entire offense. And then you lose Rice, who was supposed to be your other starting guard. And now you've lost Couture on top of that. So Virginia Tech, two-thirds of Virginia Tech's original starting backcourt for the season did not start that last game against Miami. They still almost won the game. Um, so, But I, th- I think it just goes to show that, like, with the best systems in the world, it's just not just plug and play. Right, you, you still need some difference makers. I mean, Tony Bennett's not doing anything different now than he was when they won the national championship. It's just they, just they have had like three first round picks on that team. Yeah, yeah, they were uh, that that season in adjusted uh, offensive efficiency. I believe they were second. Right. Yeah, yeah. and they were fifth in in, in defense. They were actually better offensively than defensively yeah. that year. Um, and this year they are what offensively. Uh, one hundred sixty seventh. Oh my god! I mean, so so co- to compare it to Virginia Tech, Tech is sixty seventh, right? But sixty first in defense as opposed to eighteenth. So, I, I think it'll come down to Virginia Tech's ability to play defense. You, Tech is going, you know, if if Hunter Couture can't go, MJ Collins will probably guard Reese Beekman. Um, Kihei Clark is gone, so Sean Padula doesn't have to worry about handling him on both ends of the floor. I mean, he was. Just this crafty guy who could kind of always pull a rabbit out of the hat a little bit. Um, very shifty. Th- this is a game that Virginia Tech can win, but Tech's going to have to go in with the right mindset and the right attitude, even if it doesn't have Couture, and, and try to win this game. Um, but I, I was going to say, Wake uh, Tech. So Virginia lost to Wake Forest over the weekend. Did not have a single player score more than ten points. Oh my! Gosh. That was Reese Beekman. Yeah. Andy's got something. Oh, I was curious. I wanted to ask uh, David this because he'll know better than I would. I mean, it it seems like Virginia Tech would not be in any tournament at this point, or the NCAA tournament at this point. But you look at their resume, it doesn't seem like they have any huge negatives working against them. There's not like some loss to just a a Q4 team or something like that. Uh, You know, how are they situated uh, if they could get things going here a little bit in the second half of the ACC season. I'm glad you asked. So Tech is 3-3 three and three in Q1 right now. Right. Boise State. Do they jump up top 50? Boise State is top 50. Are they 50th? Uh, no, they're like 45th. Are they really? Um, well, yeah, I looked last Boise week, they State's were 58th. Been, um, wow. Boise State's been very good here. Let me pull it up. I actually uh, screenshotted this so, to put it in my article earlier today. So Tech has played six Q1 games. Boise State is 44. <clears throat> Iowa State is 9 and Clemson is 27. So those are the three quadrant one wins. Tech is three and three in Q1. Now Tech has three Q2 losses. 
South Carolina, Florida State, Miami. Um, Tech is situated okay right now. They actually have more Q1 wins they did this time two years ago. And Tech has, <clears throat> as the schedule lines up right now, starting with the Virginia game on Wednesday, Virginia Tech has six Quadrant 1 opportunities remaining, except five of them are on the road. Sure. This is what it comes down to. You have to be able to win games on the road away from home. And right now I look and go, okay, Virginia Tech has Virginia and NC State. Those games are both this week. You've got two Quadrant 1 games this week, and you might not know if Hunter Couture is playing or yeah, not. I don't know. Um, Duke comes to town uh, in about two weeks, but then you go to Miami, you got Carolina, and you got Pitt, all three on the road, and those are all in mid to late February. So you've got some time. Tech is in an okay spot right now. The non-conference schedule paid off. If South Carolina is your biggest non-conference blemish, and South Carolina is 55th, five spots away from being a Q1 loss, like, yes, Tech got destroyed by Auburn, but right. Auburn's the eighth team in the country. Right. The Florida Atlantic loss wasn't great by 34 points, but Florida Atlantic is top, you know, is number 26 right now. Um, the biggest thing is I, I look at what Virginia Tech has been able to do on the road this season, and it hasn't necessarily been great. Last time Tech went on the road was to Florida State. Before that, it was Wake Forest. Like, you have to be able to win on the road. That defines whether you are an NIT team, a bubble team, an NCAA tournament team. Like, if you can go on the road and win. And I think that's, like, this week is huge for Virginia Tech's resume. If Tech splits, like, say Tech beats UVA and loses to NC State, or vice versa, that is a win in textbook because you pocket another Q1 win, and you, you and the loss is a Q1. Now, what you can't do is you can't go and lose on the road at Notre Dame later in the year, right? Because that's a Q3 win. Or the Q3 loss, that would damage your resume. But right now, and I think this goes for a lot of the ACC teams, besides the ones that have not lost to Louisville uh, and, and Notre Dame, like UVA, uh, yeah. Virginia Tech is in a good spot where it doesn't necessarily have a bad loss. Like, yes, some losses are by a lot of points, but there's n- it's not a, oh, my God, you lost to the worst team in the world. Like, one of the reasons why Clemson got left out last year because it lost to South Carolina. Yeah. That was a terrible, terrible loss. And they lost to uh, Louisville. And they lost to Louisville. And they lost to a, Loyola Chicago. That, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They, I, yeah they, lo- they like you just you it, you can't lose bad games. Yeah. And and right now Tech is in the position. Tech is going to have to play a lot better basketball. But if you told me Virginia Tech was two and three in the ACC, but fifty second in the net at this point, I'd be like, oh yeah, I mean that's not terrible. Like, Tech is in yeah. a position to do something. And I think yeah. that's the most important thing. And the problem here for me, all right, Tech only won nine non-conference games. So to get to 21 wins, which you probably got to get to to go to the NCAA tournament isn't at large, unless you just have an obscene number of Q1 wins, that means you got to go 12-8 and eight in the ACC, right, to get to 21 wins. Yeah. That's really hard to do. And now Tech is 2-3. and three. 
So Tech didn't win enough non-conference games. I don't like the 20-game ACC schedule. I think it actually makes it tougher for ACC teams to make the NCAA tournament. Give me two more cream puffs, steamroll them by 30, get your efficiency numbers up. You got two extra wins. It doesn't impact your number of quality wins all that much. I mean, but it gives you two extra wins. Your computer numbers are still are going to be, your efficiency numbers are going to be better. Your Q1 win-loss record probably didn't get to change all that much, if at all. And it just makes your computer numbers rather. I know why they're doing it. They do it for money and, and everything like that. But I would feel better right now if, if like, for, if Virginia Tech had won 10 or 11 non-conference games as opposed to just nine. I would never feel good about making the NSA tournament if you win single-digit non-conference games. But you play so few non-conference games this year these days that you almost have, you have to do you have to do really well in conference play and that, that's just a very difficult thing to do they're, they're gonna be you, stuck be, in the the Bayheim zone there like i know yeah. like borderline where they make the tournament you, you seem like the latter half of his career it was like that every single year it's like will syracuse get in as a 13 seed or a 12 seed <laughs> well, and if they did they'd like make the final four somehow like it was <laughs> right. ridiculous yeah, yeah. but and like in that situation you're not playing an acc game in december either <laughs> right well, Andy just recapped my childhood in a nutshell, so thank you for that. I'll tell you who doesn't have a bad loss. That's Virginia Tech women's basketball. But first, as always, Tech Sideline is presented by First Bank and Trust Company. As our presenting sponsor, First Bank and Trust Company's support has been invaluable to TSL, helping us to bring you all the great content across all of our platforms. Who you choose to bank with can make all the difference. Bank with First Bank and Trust Company. Visit firstbank.com to learn more okay they're coming off the heels of a loss to number 21 florida state that jolts florida state to 15th in the country virginia tech falls from 11 to 14th in the country solid win over miami on thursday in front of a pretty good crowd in the castle and then again that tough loss uh, against florida state first acc loss for the hokies david no need to panic florida state looks like they're going to be pretty good and we know how difficult the acc can be florida state's very good um, I don't think Florida State was getting enough credit from anybody. Um, I mean, that was this is a team that's fourteen and four, five and one, and and I think depending on who you play, right? Like Florida State has already played Carolina and NC State, and now Virginia Tech. Their Knowles are building up a really good resume. Um, Tania Latson and Michaela Timpson are usually the ones that that get a lot of the credit, get a lot of the love and the spotlight. Uh, Sarah Bajetti had 31 and eight and three for Florida State on, on Sunday. That's a really good Florida State team, and especially when you're playing on the road, um, with some brutal calls down the stretch. Oh yeah, um, should I? Man, I I tuned in at the sure, tail. Sure, yeah. Right. You you can bring up the calls. Like, first off, that there is one that. Uh, Amor looked like she dribbled off the Florida State defender's foot. Yeah, and they're like she. It was out on Amor, and it's like, did you even look at the play? Like, she looked confused when they called that the other way, and then the offensive foul on Kitley at the end was just yeah, that was bad in that spot. Like, I think they were down what five yeah, at that three point, point yeah. uh, three points. So, so the refs refs, like the refs cost tech the game. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say that. I'm just saying you would expect a little bit better officiating in crunch time yeah. in that situation. There were, but there were um, some kind of egregious calls. So the one Andy is mentioning at the end, um, it was a three-point game, Tech's inbounding the ball. Georgia Amor passes it in Elizabeth Kitley. She catches it and goes to hand it off. Just simple execution yeah. of a dribble handoff. Georgia Amor gets it and takes like two steps, and the ref calls a foul because the Florida State defender guarding Georgia Amor ran into Kitley, who had the ball in her hand. 
Right. So they called an offensive foul on Kitley, who had the ball and was just standing there, handing right. it off. And she was not moving. No. no. Even the so, broadcaster was like, I don't know so what you wanted to do. I, I, I thought... I, I was I was I saw the play. I was watching the game yeah. at the gym, but I didn't. I didn't the volume didn't was not have, on, so yeah. I couldn't hear what the so announcers were saying. The, the announcers were kind of like, "Okay, that wasn't great." When remember, this was on main ESPN channel. When yeah. they came back out of the break, Rebecca Lobo and Andrea Carter just reamed the officiating. Yeah, like Rebecca Lobo. Rebecca Lobo was like, "That is a horrible call." Um, but I, I think to get back on topic, this is that's not the reason why Virginia Tech lost this game. Elizabeth Kitley is playing some of the best basketball in the country, and if Caitlin Clark didn't exist, I think Elizabeth Kitley would have a legit shot to win National Player of the Year. I mean, back-to-back 30-pointers, and... Yeah. I don't, I'm, She's a regular Sean Padula. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I was. I I realized, processed that and was like, huh, I need to go look up to if there's ever been a time where uh, it definitely has not happened, uh, where... Two Virginia Tech players have had oh my god men's and women's thirty two two thirty point games in the same week. Um, that's how good Elizabeth Kitley is, and she's playing unreal right now. I mean, against Miami, she had thirty one and eleven. She casually has thirty and twelve uh, against Florida State. But she have twenty six at half against Miami, something like that. Uh, twenty three, twenty three at half record, which was a record for most points in a first half by a Virginia Tech player. Wow, this. This Virginia Tech team is is continuing to learn about itself. Rose Misha, I thought she in some ways was one of the most important players in this game for Virginia Tech. She had 12 points. Virginia Tech, though, is still trying to find a rhythm. Georgia Amor spent a good chunk of the second quarter in foul trouble, and Tech had to roll with a lineup of, of Kayla King running point, Matilda Eck on the wing, uh, Olivia Somiel, who they then subbed out for Karis Baker, uh, Clara Strack, who they then subbed out for Rose Michaud, and Elizabeth Kitley. None of those are true point guards. Uh, Kayla King did play point guard in high school, but but that was the group that came in and played about the final four and a half minutes after Carly Wenzel picked up her third foul, and they outscored Florida State fourteen to seven. That's not a normal lineup, and I think if you're Kenny Brooks, you go, oh, okay, that was pretty good. And then Florida State kind of picked some picked up some steam at home. This is a team that had not lost to an ACC team since January 26th of last year. Virginia Tech. That was Duke. Yeah. Virginia Tech had not lost in 15 or Virginia Tech had won 15 consecutive games against ACC opponents. That included the long win streak ACC championship. And what's today's date? The 16th. So almost a year Virginia Tech yeah. went without losing to an ACC team. That's Crazy impressive. Yeah. Um, Gio, you uh, you and I were both in that press conference at Westmore had mm-hmm. where Westmore said the winner of this conference is not going to come out unscathed. There, There's going to be a loss or two or three or four because that's how good this league is. You saw it between the depth of Miami, who's a pretty good team that just did not play well on Wednesday, and then Florida State. Um you know, I think the biggest key for Virginia Tech going forward, Elizabeth Kitley's playing great basketball. She was 14 of 28. Uh, like, when you scored 30 points on 14 of 28 and you only attempt three free throws, that's a pretty good basketball game. But Tech has to continue to figure things out around her. I think the key is Georgia Amor, as you would expect. Um, she was 6 of 17. I think she's been forcing it a little bit. I actually 
think what Chomp, how, the way Champadoul has been playing lately um, is something that, and I'm not saying George Amor needs to go in the film room and watch film of Champadoul play because she's a great player. But but when you just compare the two Virginia Tech point guards right now, who are both very very good. These last couple games, Padula's kind of let it come to him and and has played more within the offense. And I think Georgia Amor, she sometimes feels like she has to score. She didn't feel like that last year because she was passed first until she got to like January, February, March. Um, She's a good player and Tech's going to figure it out. And, you know, the last time Tech lost an ACC game, it won 15 straight games and went to the Final Four. Like, I I wouldn't, I don't know if I would expect that, but. As Tech, long as they don't get bad refs again, they probably will. Tech bounces back from losses, usually yeah, in a yeah. in a good manner. So, you know, I, I I can imagine, you know, what Amor is going to look like on Thursday when Tech goes to Duke. That's a really good Duke team that's going to play him really really physical. That's a quadrant one opportunity. Um, big big week for both Virginia Tech basketball teams. Well, that transitioned us nicely here to uh, wrap things up for the day. Duke coming up. Um, Duke's not quite what they were last year. They were a very, very good team last year. Gave Virginia Tech some trouble. Then Tech was able to take care of business uh, when they played them again in the castle. That was a fun uh, revenge game towards the end of the ACC regular season last year. What do we know about the Blue Devils before uh, the Hokies head into Cameron Indoor on Thursday night? This is a very good defensive team. That's kind of the staple of Carroll Lawson. Um, Duke was an insanely good defensive team last year, but Celeste Taylor, the point guard, um, she was right up there with, I want to say she won Defensive Player of the Year last year um, in the conference. She transferred to Ohio State, who from, if you're a Virginia Tech fan and you remember watching that game, you remember how good Ohio State was defensively last season. Um, This Duke team only returned two starters from last year's team. Cheyenne Day-Wilson, who started for the Blue Devils last year, went to Miami, Tech saw her on, on Thursday. This is a very different Duke team. Three scores in double figures, brought in some transfers. Again, very good defense. Virginia Tech, last time it went down to Durham, it lost. And that was kind of a wake-up call. And I'm curious to see what this loss to Florida State kind of triggers for Tech. What, like what, how does Tech respond? How do you how do you bounce back? And, and this is a a good chance on the road against a team that is going to be very very physical. I remember sitting in Kenny Brooks press conference in Cameron Indoor last year after the game, and Elizabeth Kitley pro- basically gotten beat up all game, and, and it was the way Duke had played, and what Tech did afterwards. Because Kenny Brooks was so frustrated, he jokingly said, "He was like, I'm going to tell Elizabeth Kitley if this is how the re- officiating is going to be, I'm going to tell Elizabeth Kitley not to come back next year," <laughs> because he was so fed up and frustrated with how you know Kitley had two or three people on her the entire game and she, she was just getting beat up. What Tech did after that, I think, kind of changed the trajectory of the season. Tech started moving Kitley around, and you you saw that a little bit against Miami. You saw that a little bit against Florida State. Kitley's comfortable stepping out and hitting that shot from the elbow or hitting the mid-range jumper from over here. Tech always runs that curl where she comes off a screen under the basket and she catches it and she fades away from the baseline. That Duke game kind of opened things up and and got Kenny Brooks thinking, what does this Florida State loss do? What what does Tech realize? And I think it could be a similar thing with George Amor. 
Not that she played bad. She had 13 points. But when you when you take 17 shots, you know, I, I think you know, if it was Elizabeth Kitley doing that, but she still had 15 and, and 12, people might go, oh, okay, well, there's just another day for Kitley and they were hounding her inside. I think Amor has a little bit more of a spotlight on her because she's the person that has the ball in her hands mm-hmm. almost the entire game. How does Virginia Tech respond? Gio, you asked, that's a really good Duke team. You have to win on the road in this league. It's very, very difficult. Tech just lost on the road. Uh, I think I think we'll know a lot more after this game, and then Tech's back at home against a, a Clemson team that's kind of around 85 to 95 in the net. Um, that's back in Castle on Sunday. Big week for Virginia Tech basketball, and guess what? I'll be at all four games. <laughs> I'll see you. Uh, we'll see you down in Charlottesville. Then we'll see you down in Durham as well. Guys, what's coming up uh, on Tech Sideline throughout the week? Uh, you know, I wrote myself down for a basketball column. I'd originally scheduled it for tomorrow, but since Tech plays UVA tomorrow, I think I'll go ahead and do it on Thursday instead. Uh, and then Brandon Patterson is starting his uh, – up his scouting reports of Virginia Tech's uh, transfer portal guys. Sweet. So he's doing his first one on Aeneas Peoples, and it'll be posted on Thursday. And then Friday Q&A like normal on Friday. So that that's what I've got coming up. Yeah, basketball stuff for me. I'll have two stories, a game recap, and some takeaways from each of the next, at least each of the next three games while, while Tech is on the road. Uh I'm, again, I'm very curious to see how the men do. I think last time Virginia Tech men won in Charlottesville was my freshman year of college, uh, 2017-18. Uh, it took a big effort from Kerry Blackshear. At the time, it was one of the biggest wins in Virginia Tech men's basketball history no on the road, uh, beat number two UVA on the road. I think Tech has a good chance to win. Then the women are on the road. The men are on the road again. Lots of basketball stuff for me. Andy, what you got coming up this week? Uh, TBD. Okay. I like <laughs> All that. Right. I wasn't here at this time last year, so I kind of figured out my place in the offseason because Chris does a lot of yeah. analytical stuff football-wise. I well, the, Probably at some point I'll do a depth chart type thing, but it's kind of similar to what you had last week, so I don't yeah. want to run that straight out this week. So we, we do, maybe wait a little while. We'll probably that. overlap a little bit this offseason, so feel free to take advantage of this Downtown. Well, Chris was covering well, so. for me while I was in Hawaii, so oh, I can't yeah. complain. You had too much to cover. Yeah, you had a good trip. Oh, it was a great trip. Canoeing, <laughs> whale watching, uh, hiked up a mountain. Was uh, stars at night. It was fantastic. Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. So I did that in Honolulu. Nice. Universal Studios. Hit it in L.A. on the way out there. So nice. Uh, yeah, it was a a, a packed. 10-day trip, I think it was. My, so, my dad was turning 80, so we were, the whole family flew out to Hawaii. Uh, wow. To so are you extra cold this week after being in uh, It wasn't great really? coming back to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't like it. I'd rather be in the Hawaii weather. <laughs> well, so. you're used to many, uh, Minnesota weather. I am. People too. say that. True. I've uh, not never, lived in Minnesota that's, in that's 21 years now, so yeah. it's been a minute. Yeah, I think I've actually almost lived in the South in Virginia as long as I lived in the North in Minnesota, Wisconsin. You know who's used to the snow? I'm loving the snow. I mean, this this was me yesterday, literally just planted on the couch, watching the snow fall the entire day out the window as NFL was on all day. It was fantastic. I like the snow. I hated the the, the previous days when the wind was blowing like crazy. When it snows, the wind stops blowing. Yes. And it's actually warmer. Here's the thing. I'd rather it snow like like it did... Uh, Monday and Tuesday. I'd rather it snow a bunch than there 
what it, it was like Friday or Saturday where it was like, oh, it's supposed to snow, and it didn't. It just got very, very cold, and nothing happened. First of all, Gio, sitting inside and watching the snow isn't like some <laughs> north, like, oh, look at this tough northerner enjoys no, sitting you inside. Need, inside. I mean, I you going to Buffalo this week? Oh, Anybody can to, sit inside no. and enjoy the snow. Like, <laughs> well, it's supposed I to be seven inside and watching the snow. It's, it's supposed to be, supposed to be get down to seven degrees tonight. You yeah. should enjoy that. Saturday, a high of eighteen <laughs> with a low of six. Maybe I'll go on vacation somewhere this weekend. Nothing is worse than when, and it did this the whole time I was in Syracuse uh, over break, when it's like 35 and raining. Like, mm. I'm so glad that it's cold enough to snow. We got right. some snow because it didn't snow at all here last year. Yeah. Uh, not at least when I was here. So uh, we got a good snow freshman year. We get a good snow here. It feels, uh, feels a little more like home. So, anyways, appreciate you guys. Everyone stay safe out there with the weather. Uh, that'll do it for episode 341 of the Tech Sideline podcast. We'll see you next week. All right.